entering the Freedom Hut. President Trump says something kind of mean about Joe Biden, and the media freaks out. We'll talk about what that means, and also the latest on North Korea and Iran policy, some big Supreme Court decisions, what that means about the legal future for this country, and Chernobyl is the best thing on television right now. I'll explain why coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Tim Gellman made a statement that Joe Biden is a low IQ individual. He probably is, based on his record. Uh, I think I agree with him on that. Joe Biden was a disaster. His administration with President Obama, they were basically a disaster when it came to so many things, whether it was economy, whether it was military defense, no matter what it was, they had a lot of problems. So I'm not a fan. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Tell President President Trump there with some uh, harsh words about uh, Joe Biden, although are they untrue words or are they just harsh words? Media went into uh, full-on freak-out mode, which I suppose is not even the least bit surprising. They freak out about everything, but saying that Biden is, uh, is low IQ seems to be too much for our intrepid press corps to handle. I just, I don't know, they never grow tired of the freak out. They never grow tired of suggesting that uh, President Trump is basically the worst person in the history of the universe. And they think that if they keep telling us this, they will prevent him from getting reelected. But I got to tell you, I still I still believe that Trump's in very in a very good position if in fact the economy stays where it is and if we continue to see the prosperity and just the, the, the common sense approach to governance. Uh, I, they, they can complain about his tweets all day. They can compl- complain about his side comments. Oh, he's he's siding with dictators over over his own countrymen. This is what they say. They forget that we remember what it was like during the Obama years. We remember what it was like to hear that Republicans were a bunch of warmongers and in fact war criminals. This was commonly said about Bush and Cheney, especially toward the latter part of the Bush administration. Uh, there were some who thought that there should be charges brought against the commander, the commander in chief when it was Bush for just the decisions he made that they did not like. But now they're worried about saying that someone is, is low IQ. I don't think Biden's very smart. Does that make me a bad person? Does that mean that I'm someone that isn't allowed to have an opinion anymore? I think there's a lot of ways that you can... Go back and look at what he said over time. He's a pure, it's just what Reagan said. He's a pure demagogue. If you're somebody who's not particularly sophisticated in your political thinking, and and by that I don't mean mean fancy in your thinking. I don't mean an establishment figure. I mean you're not sophisticated and you don't understand that most of these guys, most of these politicians, including Biden, are full of crap. Most of them lie. They, They try to stand for one thing when it comes to getting attention and donations, and then when they're in the swamp, when they're in D.C., they go in a different direction. They hope nobody pays attention. You know, they, they, sign, they sign off on things and hope that they don't get held accountable for it. And You know, there, there's all these different ways 
that they try to evade accountability uh, while at the same time promoting their own individual brands and pretending like they're doing public service. I think Biden is, in that way, the quintessential American politician with all the bad baggage that that brings with it. And given what they say about Trump on a regular basis, are are we really to believe that Biden is low IQ, even if he said that Kim Jong-un smiled at him a little bit because he said this, and maybe Kim Jong-un agrees that Biden's low IQ. I mean, Kim probably just smiled because it's kind of a funny thing for a president to say about an opponent. Uh, You know, when, you know, here's a perfect example, Uh, just to step back for a moment. They act like this is such a low blow, low IQ Biden. Uh, Can I also say that they were telling us not long ago that to call, I think it was Maxine Waters, low IQ. Producer Mike, wasn't it, wasn't it Maxine Waters that he says is low IQ? He used to, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's low IQ uh, that he used to. That we were told that was racist. Well, now he calls Joe Biden low IQ. So do we get to revisit the whole it wasn't racist to call Maxine Waters low IQ? No, of course not. They've skipped past that. They, the destruction hath been wrought by the media, and therefore there's no reason for them to look at it again and have any kind of a uh, conversation about maybe the, maybe they were wrong. Um, but I remember in the show The West Wing, which was set up really to be an alternative presidency for libs during the Bush administration. I mean, that was, that was what its selling point was, you know, that, that there was going to be a, um, a place where libs could tune in and see what a good Democrat president would really be like. What was his name? Uh, I don't know. His name was like Jebediah or something or other, right? The guy who was Bartlett, President Bartlett. That's what they used to call him. And, you know, he at one point had this supposed uh, open mic. People always say hot mic, but that's not the correct terminology. President Bartlett on the West Wing had this open mic moment. I didn't see that much of the show, but I remember this one where he he referred to a guy as like a 22 caliber mind in a 357 caliber world. And at the end of the episode, the, the really, and that was created all this controversy that he called the political opponent, essentially called the political opponent stupid. And this got caught on a mic. And at the end of the episode, it comes out that sure enough, the president knew the mic was open. And this was a very clever ploy to take a swipe at his, oh, by the way, Republican opponent. Now you could say to me, Buck, that's scripted and who cares? And it's, Aaron Sorkin doing his usual liberal, fast-talking, uh, cle- too clever by half nonsense. And, and yes, that's all true. But if it were a Democrat in real life or in fiction calling a Republican stupid, nobody would bat an eyelash because they call Republicans stupid all the time. They call Bush stupid. I mean, they, they that's one of their favorite knocks on prominent Republicans is that they're all just so, so dumb. That's what they say. But you can't call Biden low IQ. You're not, you're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to point to the fact that this guy is somebody who never was able to get uh, a substantial percentage of the national voting population, even the Democrat side, to vote, to vote for him. He's really just been uh, an along for the ride. You know, he is the quintessential, I said before, politician, but also really the epitome of the establishment man. And he's in a... He's in the state of Delaware and just wants to make sure he keeps getting reelected in Delaware. I'm sure he brings home all kinds of goodies and and uh, and pork, whatever he can for Delaware. And that's it. What has his record been in the past? A lot of a lot of embarrassment, a lot of nonsense, a lot of uh, missteps. 
But this is what we're offered instead of Trump. This is what we're told we're supposed to get excited about. I just, I really, I really can't do it, folks. I, I can't bring myself to accept this nonsensical position that Joe Biden is the is the answer to what ails us. I mean, in this period of tremendous Trump derangement syndrome, you'd think they could at least put forward a candidate that normal people could say is a return to normalcy. But the normalcy that Joe Biden represents is exactly what is uh, what what Trump is in office to get rid of. We, we don't want these careers. We don't want these lifetime politicians to be in charge of us. Oh, and then you add things like uh, how Trump is doing as president. And this is what we're always told. You, you know, you've got to ignore this. This doesn't really matter. And who cares? And it matters a lot. Libs going into the Obama reelection were constantly having to explain how America's best days economically were behind it. There really wasn't the kind of, of growth that in, in the future, there wouldn't be the kind of growth that we'd seen in the past. It, it was a lot of excuse making for the Obama administration having a very slow recovery. And really, it was about a, a kind of hostility to capitalism. I mean, that's that's what was a, a defining characteristic of uh, you know uh, of what obama was pushing you know he was always very concerned with you know redistribution of wealth and with leveling the playing field based not on the removal of regulations or anything like that but by picking winner picking winners and losers having the government pick winners and losers instead of of the market and that had negative consequences but you you have the numbers that are out there right now for President Trump are very strong. I mean, here's Prime Minister Abe. You know, Trump Trump was over there playing golf. I wish I could get excited about golf. I have so many great people I know love golf. I, I don't... I've tried a few times. I'm very bad, and I do not understand the appeal. And I kind of don't want to understand the appeal because I feel like I'll be giving away thousands of hours of my life to something that maybe is not my, the best usage of my time. But uh, anyway, here's what Prime Minister Abe of Japan has said about how things are going with President Trump in office. Just remember, just a reminder, this is what's really happening versus what the libs are telling us are happening. And that's their big pitch for, for Biden is trying to convince us that things are terrible. Here's reality. Play four. President Trump came to the office. Japanese companies decided on new investment to the tune of $24 billion to the United States, thereby creating 45,000 new jobs. Daring tax reform that President conducted, thanks to that, automotive and energy-related Japanese companies are making investment in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Alabama, and Kentucky and others. They are made, they have decided to make new investments. In a short span of a month, so, Japanese mean, sorry, companies... I know it's kind of hard to hear there through the, through the interpreter and, and the, you know, the audio is not great, but you're getting the idea. A lot of new investment, a lot of new jobs, billions and billions of dollars. It's not strange for me or for you to care more about that than is Trump being mean to Joe Biden. Is he making fun of Joe Biden in a way that is unpresidential? Is it unpresidential for him to say this? Uh, we've had plenty of Republicans who were very presidential, who didn't get very much done, who weren't able to achieve very much 
well, weren't able to win, first of all, but even if they did win, weren't able to enact the kind of policies that they promised on the campaign trail. And while it's all well and good, and I'm, look, I'm a very, some of you who have met me know this, I'm very polite by nature. I'm a very polite individual. I try to be respectful and friendly to everyone. Uh, I'm, I, I think that everyone should act that way, but I also know that there are more important things than the presidential decorum that some expect when it comes to how the commander-in-chief and the top of the executive branch conducts himself or perhaps herself in the future. Uh, there are more important things, and Trump is executing on those more important things. This bring me to, brings me to the uh, questions over his foreign policy. Got to dive into some of that. I know North Korea is doing a little bit of some uh, saber rattling, some missiles fired off. That's, that's a bit problematic. We got kind of a grab bag today, folks. I mean, I, I sort of wish there was a a major, you know, deep state story, or we have something of the declassification that occurred. We're going to get into that in June in a big way. I know that for sure when they release the Inspector General report. But you know, today's one of these days where we just have a lot of stories to cover or different stories. So we're going to move through a bunch of topics and uh, and cover some real ground. And and the Supreme Court cases today, some very interesting decisions there that I want to spend some time on with all of you. So uh, sit back, relax, and uh, let the freedom hunt roll. We'll be right back. I, don't, I think Biden's busy focusing on his campaign messages and doesn't need to respond to President Trump. But how many despots are on the Trump 2020 reelect campaign at this point, right? I mean, you have Kim Jong-un criticizing uh, President Trump's political rivals. You have Vladimir Putin criticizing Democrats. Let's just wait for him to say something about Joe Biden. And it's all pretty clear why they're doing it. These despots are trying to manipulate President Trump by criticizing his rivals because they want him in the Oval Office from 2020 onward. He's been pretty good for them. Russia is misbehaving globally. Kim Jong-un's making more weapons, making more friends. I think that Kim Jong-un wants to ride the Trump train all the way through 2020 because it is so good for Kim Jong-un to have Trump in the Oval Office. That is the dumbest national security analysis I've heard in a long time. It's a CNN analyst. It's not surprising. Everything she said there is false and, and just stupid. But they keep putting her on air, though. Why? Because she feeds into the Trump derangement syndrome that the audience of CNN wants to hear. That, that's, that's all it is. You know, the CNN audience is like a bunch of hamsters. You, you, they want to push a pedal and get anti-Trumpism. Push a pedal and get anti, anti-Trumpism. That's why I, I, some of you may have seen in that uh, interview I gave, which got a bit of play where I explained why CNN has lost its mind and how Trump has broken CNN and how there's no shortage of wackiness now at CNN as a result of uh, Trump's presidency. I mean, they really just can't handle him. They, they don't know what to do. And, and their audience has been so thoroughly propagandized against President Trump that there's no realistic expectation, no one can have any realistic expectation that the audience could be brought back to reality. You know, they, they would rather hear stuff like this. I mean, she said, you know, Trump has been good for Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un, how is that possible? CNN national security analyst who I'd never heard of before she's on CNN. How would that be possible? There are more sanctions that are more crippling and damaging to North Korea's economy and specifically targeted at North Korea's nuclear and missile programs than at any time in history. Right now, more than ever before. So how is, is, how is that good for North Korea? The Trump administration is pushing for the removal by democratic means, but the removal 
of Maduro by the Guaido opposition in Venezuela. And after Cuba, Russia is probably the single closest ally that Venezuela has. And Russia's probably in the number two spot. Is that is that doing Putin's bidding? I mean, I, I just would like to see some of these so-called experts explain themselves. You know, I, I wish they were on a network where the anchors weren't a bunch of total buffoons. I mean, anti-intellectual, incurious, preening buffoons, because that's what you have at CNN all across the board. I, I wish that they would ask a question like the ones that I'm asking. Do you think that she would have an answer to any of this? She, uh, 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 you know, a lot, there'd be a lot of stumbling, a lot of a lot of dodging and, you know, Trump, Charlottesville, 25th Amendment, Russia, collusion, you know, just with all all this. It's like argument by onomatopoeia, you know, just making noises. It's a fun word to say, isn't onomatopoeia? But that's what they do. They can engage in the substance because they don't have sufficient substance to make the case. They can't explain their positions. They just want to get out the talking points that appeal to the pre-existing political prejudices of the left-wing audience that watches them. I'm still in a bit of a rage at watching CNN International in my hotel room in Beijing and just seeing how it was, it's anti, I'm telling you the truth, it's anti-American propaganda. That's what they that's what CNN was pushing out. We're going to go to war with Iran. We're going to go to war with North Korea. The president has broken the law. He's lawless. He hates immigrants. All these things. This is what they're telling the world. It's an embarrassment. CNN's an embarrassment on the world stage. Speaking of embarrassment, uh, liberal geo strategist Ian Bremer of a Eurasia group. Who I will say is is more knowledgeable than a lot of other libs. I've I'm familiar with Ian. I, I've a long time ago actually met Bre- uh, Bremer and talked to him for a while about some geopolitical issues. He, he is a, he's a smart little dude. He's little, uh, but he's not a he's not an, an individual of good judgment. Uh, does not understand the big picture, and that I think is a pretty good way to set up what happened next. He. He got into a whole bunch of hot water. If you don't know this guy, Ian Bremer, he's the president of the Eurasia Group. And he tweeted out a quote on Sunday to President Trump. And this is this is just a case study in how Trump derangement syndrome both can instantaneously infect Twitter. And then also you see the media will self-justify what is fake news or there will be people who claim Oh, well, even if it's not true, it rings true, to borrow from uh, that guy who's the Michael Wolf, the author of, uh, you know, Fire and Fury. Is, no, that's the Fire and Fury. Is it Fire and Fury? I think so. Um, but he has a new, a new book out, Siege, about Trump. We'll get to, we'll get to that a bit, a bit later on. Uh, but back to Ian Bremer here. He, he tweeted this out and represented it as a quote from President Trump. And the quote was, well, what he, what he wrote was President Trump in Tokyo, quote, Kim Jong-un is smarter and would make a better president than sleepy Joe Biden. Um, now, this was then shared, and it wasn't shared by just a bunch of people that you've never heard of. It was shared by Congressman Ted Lieu of California, noted Trump deranged far left loon, CNN contributor Anna Navarro Cardenas, who uh, I would note 
is among the dumbest people on television. That's, you know, if it were an IQ contest between her and Joe Biden, uh, it's, it's going to be close. It's going to be close. She's among the dumbest analysts on television and not a nice person either. For those of you who are curious, I, I've worked with her much to my regret in the past. And, you know, she shared it. And then all of a sudden it comes out, oh, wait a second, that's fake. You could even say, you know, say it was fake news. And then Bremer, who's a lib, pretends not to be. He pretends to just be a geopolitical strategist and expert. This is just like journalists. There's always this facade that they want to put up of the, ob, you know, that, that objectivity gives them greater narrative power, meaning they can create a more potent anti-Trump narrative if they have this, this pretense of being objective. They're, they're not partisans. They're just telling the truth. You know, this is like CNN with the apples and bananas. You know, we're, we're not an anti-Trump, get Trump network. We're just calling, we're just calling balls and strikes, man. We're just doing the truth. No, they're not. They're absolutely not. It's obviously ridiculous for them to claim otherwise. Uh, but Bremer defended the tweet at first and said it was obviously ludicrous and yet kind of plausible. And he wrote, especially on Twitter, where people automatically support whatever political position they have. That's the point. He eventually had to apologize. He said, uh, my tweet yesterday about Trump preferring Kim Jong-un to Biden as president was meant in jest. I should have been clearer. My apologies. Now, I, you know, I don't know why he would, you know, I don't know why he would think that, that that's a funny, that that's a particularly funny joke. You know, I, I could write a really stupid thing and pretend that it was uh, Ocasio-Cortez. And it could be really, really dumb unless it was so blatant that even Ocasio-Cortez would understand that it's a joke, you know, you're running the risk of misrepresenting uh, misrepresenting something. And I think that that, that is what happened. But, you know, in, in a Trump-deranged world, particularly am among the elites, people like Bremer, who think very... You want to talk about somebody who's an establishment guy who thinks very highly of himself. Trust me, Ian Bremer is in that category. Um, but in that, in that milieu... In that uh, strata, and I sound like a guy who walks around wearing an ascot when I use these words, but those are the kind of people that will believe this stuff because they really think that Trump is capable of essentially saying anything. And anything that will support that belief, anything that will go to, you know, oh yeah, Trump is in fact the worst person ever, they will, they will sign on for that essentially right away. Um, they, they don't think through it beyond that. Now, on to uh, the, the foreign policy challenges right now, because they're really going after Trump on this. And I think it's because of what happened recently in Iran. But there's also a, look, let's let's be let's be honest about the hole in the news cycle right now. The, the media has gotten used to having a major uh, story, even if they have to concoct it, even if they have to re. Uh, essentially do a retread and go back onto what they've already done in the past, they're used to having some kind of Mueller quote-unquote bombshell to either pre-report on, report on, or post-report on, meaning we think this is coming, this has happened, oh, let's talk about this thing that happened. That has been the cycle of the news media. That's really been the, the beating heart of most of the mainstream news outlets for over two years now. But in, the, in a post-Mueller report world and pre-Inspector General report, there aren't enough 
leaks to sustain them. There aren't enough ways for them to uh, write the same story over and over because they need some little kernel of news. They need something to, to justify telling us the same thing they've already told us a million different times. And that's why I think there's this focus right now on foreign policy, because when in doubt, the establishment will go to one of their favorite areas of criticism. They can't criticize Trump on the economy. They just sound stupid. I mean, they, they try sometimes. It doesn't particularly work. But on North Korea and Iran, you're seeing a lot of, oh, Trump is over his head. He's over his skis. He's doing all this bad stuff. You know, for one reason or another, they're they're upset at Trump and upset at uh, how he's handling all this foreign policy. And uh, let's start with North Korea. Here's what the president has said about what's going on there, because they're already, you know, the libs, even in, in a case of uh, national security, that you would think everybody could put aside their own feelings of partisanship. You know, it would be such a win for the world. And I really mean that if Trump's North Korea gambit were to, were to come through. But you know Pelosi's rooting against him. You know that while Trump's angling for a deal, there are Democrats who have their fingers crossed that it won't happen because it would not only be politically problematic for them, it, it would also mean that their uh, claims that Trump is, is terrible and the worst and can't understand foreign policy would look particularly hollow, right? So there's, there's a lot riding on this for Democrats for all the wrong reasons. But here's what Trump says about the current status of what's going on with his North Korea negotiation. Play eight. We continue to hope that Chairman Kim seizes the opportunity to transform his country through denuclearization. It is a country with tremendous economic and other potential. The United States also remains committed to the issue of abductions, which I know is a top priority for Prime Minister Abe. So what happened is the North Koreans fired off some, on uh, May 9th, they fired off some short-range ballistic missiles. And this is a violation of UN resolutions, and it's clearly a provocation. I'm not here to tell you that things that are, are not. I'm not going to say that this is good, this is progress, this is to be expected. I'm here to say, okay, you know, maybe this, uh, maybe this Trump negotiation isn't going to work. We don't know yet. It's too early to know. But there's no loss here. The president has not gone on an, an apology tour around the world. He did not go before Kim Jong-un and and bow and be submissive he did say he loved him which is weird I, again it's weird i'm just gonna say when things are what they are it's a weird thing to say i don't know why trump went that direction and i, I give him a lot of latitude because one he's the president despite all the forces against him and, and i'm not uh, and two i think that to be an unconventional and mold-breaking president you're gonna have to do things that make people think whoa is that really the way that this should be done with all of that said, though, um, you know, North Korea may not turn out the way that it's supposed to. North Korea may not be some big win for the administration. But unlike what we saw with Obama's foreign policy, it's not going to be a catastrophic loss either. He's taking his shot and trying to do something good. Um, I, I wish he would focus more on or at least have more success. I think there is some administration focus on the border. Uh, I wish the Republicans would get their act together. You know what's going to be the big 
Achilles heel for the Republican Party going into the going into the elections. It's going to be health care again. Here's a really simple question, folks, as we sit here and, you know, it's a pretty look. It's a it's a, a news day where there's no giant news stories out there. It's a lot of sort of second tier level stories. There's nothing that's really moving the, the needle in a, in a big way in the news cycle. Um, this would be a perfect opportunity if Republicans actually had their stuff together to come up with you know, some healthcare approach that would allow for people to know what the Republican Party stands for. What does the Republican Party stand for in healthcare? Free markets. Okay, great. How? This is going to be a problem. It was a problem for us in the midterm. It's going to be a problem now. I don't know what the Trump, uh, what the Trump camp is suggesting for healthcare. I do know that, you know, every, every time now I get a bill from a doctor's office, I just wince. It just feels like it's more expensive and gets worse all the time. They're less effective. I spend less time with the doctor and my bill is just bigger and bigger now. Every every year somehow I'm in a worse position vis-a-vis the medical community. And you know, thankfully I don't have a I don't have a wife, I don't have kids, I don't have a family that I I can't, for so many of you who have to to deal with all that. I I don't know, I don't know how you do it. It's so expensive, so time consuming, so much paperwork and nonsense. There are opportunities here for Trump and the Republicans to at least present something really worthwhile and sell it. You know, Trump is a salesman. He's a gifted salesman. That's one area where I think that his skill set, if anything, is is undervalued or is underappreciated. You know, he's much better at conveying to the public why something is good or why something is bad. You know, he's very good at at uh, at just that at persuasion and. Healthcare is such a big area for more Republican attention. But right now we're just letting we're letting the media dominate the narrative with all this stuff about foreign policy and and Trump and Iran and North Korea. And here's here's one part of this that I I just won't lose. I refuse to lose sight of for anyone who supported the Obama administration and then supported Hillary for president to think that they're in a position to lecture the rest of us about, uh, you know, about what is going on with the Trump administration's foreign policy. This is just crazy. Every major foreign policy challenge, every area of foreign policy, uh, kind of foreign policy hotspot under Obama got worse. And everything that Hillary touched turned to lead, uh, except for things that enriched Hillary and her husband. That always turned to gold. But every foreign policy issue was uh, was a, a loss, if not a disaster. Those same people that want to tell us how Trump should be doing it now, it's, it's really just not, it's just crazy. How do you pay for that? Well, what we have chosen not to do, because it would just engender enormous debate, is to tell you how I'm going to raise every nickel uh, in a $3.5 trillion budget. That's something that is going to have to be discussed. So I wanted to lay out the program as to what it would mean, and to tell you that it will cost you and ordinary Americans a lot less than you are currently spending on average. Okay, what it will probably end up looking like is a payroll tax on employers, an increase in income tax in a progressive way for ordinary people with a significant deductible for low-income people who will pay nothing for it. Upper-income people will pay more. Bernie Sanders got a health care plan. You're going to have the very rich pay. And it's, it's going to be better. It's going to be cheaper for the average American. It's not true, folks. It is not true. And as I was speaking to you before about where are the Republicans on health care? Where is the messaging? 
You got holes right now in the news cycle. People like they like news. Why people listen to this show? Why listen to all the different shows and watch TV and read newspapers and the internet or whatever? People like the news. And right now there's an opportunity to really get out there and establish uh, what it is that Republicans are trying to sell in healthcare. Instead, you got Bernie Sanders running around like the tooth fairy, just promising to leave $20 bills under everybody's pillow. All you do is leave a tooth, and then I'll take that tooth because I want him, and then I'll replace it with a nice crisp $20 bill. That's what he's saying. And, and what do we have? Oh, it's just going to be a payroll tax. It's just going to be an increase in a very, a very progressive way um, on, on the wealthiest Americans. That's going to pay for all this. That's not going to raise trillions of dollars. If you want a Swedish system of health care, you have to pay Swedish tax rates. That's just the way it will be. And the Swedish government is far more lean and efficient than ours. You know, the, the Swedes are in a much better position to implement the kind of progressive tax rate that we've seen. And the Swedes are in a much better position to uh, have their government provide these kinds of services. Right? But anyway, not, not to get too deep into Sweden. Um, but, you know, here we are. It's healthcare, and Bernie Sanders is out there, and he's, he's giving the message out to people. You know, I don't want us to get asleep at the wheel. I don't want Republicans to think that they can play a very safe game here, that, that Trump can play it safe. I, he, look, he's not going to, but it's really the rest of the party. And it's where do the Democrats stand on this? I mean, we know nothing is really going to, uh, going to get done. I mean, Trump even said this. Play, play clip seven. This is on the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade deal. Here's what Trump said. Play seven. I think that we will work with them. We have a USMCA. I would imagine that Nancy Pelosi will approve that. I would think it would be very hard not to, but we'll see. But certainly as things get approved, I would love to sign them. It's only good for our country. Trump says he'd like to sign some deals, want to do some work with the other side. But here's what you and I both know. And we don't have to be told this. We, we know that there's no chance the Democrats are going to work with them on anything. In fact, it's really hard for the president to extend his hand in, in a professional, never mind a friendly way, to the other side when they're still stuck on, you know, he's a criminal, he should be impeached. You, know, you got this book out now with Wolf, uh, Michael Wolf, saying that Mueller wrote a draft that initially was going to say the president should be indicted for obstruction, but then he, he backed off of that. How, how this guy Wolf would get that, which would be the juiciest detail uh, in a very long time, uh, probably the juicy detail of the entire special counsel investigation, uh, that, defies, uh, that defies explanation, and I think it defies belief, too. Um, but we have more on the status of the uh, post-Muller probe and all that coming up. It's about time for her to just you know, cut off the nonsense. If she doesn't, of course, and they actually go and proceed, it'll be interesting to see if the, those 30 or 40 uh, Democrats, uh, moderate Democrats, actually go along with it. If they do and they actually get an impeachment done, of course it has to come over to the Senate, as everybody knows, where it will just simply be dropped. This is not about the 2020 election. It's about doing what's right now for our country. This is going to be a precedent that we set when we don't hold this president accountable to the rule of law and to the United States Constitution. Why do you think you can't convince a majority of, of House Democrats that it's time to impeach him? No, I think it is moving towards that. It's going to demand it. It already is. Some of them are saying it. I've felt this way all along. Impeachment. They, they think it's going to happen. They think it needs to happen. They are, are not willing to, uh, to let this go. And, and as I keep pointing out to you, it should be 
entirely a function of whether the president deserves to be impeached or not, instead of, oh, how will this look for us? What will this mean for us going forward if, in fact, the president is impeached? Does that make it harder for us to, you know, win seats in the House and the Senate and and defeat the president? Because no one thinks, no one seriously believes he's going to be removed by a two-thirds vote of the of the uh, Senate. Um, no one really thinks that that's going to happen. So, you know, and just as an aside, I watched, uh, speaking of politics and all this, I was just last night trying to, I had a hard time falling asleep and I was looking for something to watch and I threw on Designated Survivor and man, it is so, for some reason, the those ABC, NBC, CBS, those shows on those networks, I just find are, the writing is always so trite and it's all so predictable and Kiefer Sutherland, the, the whole thing, man, I don't know. We, we need some, there's some, there's a lot of great shows out there. I'm not even, I'm not even going to get into Game of Thrones. I, I called it. I've been saying all along, the show really lost its way in the last, this last season was pretty much just garbage top to bottom. And the season before that was very shaky in some parts. And without the great source material of the books, the writers were just not in a position to execute at the same level. But anyway, I know you don't want, you don't, you don't come here for my Game of Thrones hot takes, but I finally caught up post-China and post-Los Angeles trips. I was able to watch it, and I didn't think it was, I, think it was, I thought it was all very predictable and not very good. Um, but back to, uh, speaking of predictable, uh, back to impeachment and whether impeachment is going to happen or not, I, I just think that, they tell you everything that you need to know with the fact that even the Democrats in the House, as rabidly anti-Trump as they are and as, as dedicated as they are to the um, you know, removal of, of Trump from office, at least in theory, or, or the destruction of Trump's presidency, they, they can't bring themselves to actually do this. They, they can't bring themselves to just commit to it. What else? We already have the Mueller report. What else do we have to know? What else has to be said for them to come around? And there's just this back and forth. They're really just putting their fingers in, uh, fingers in the air to see which way the wind is blowing. And that's how they're going to determine whether or not the president is worthy of impeachment. But that tells you everything. Because then it's, it's, it's just a political calculation has been all along. This is just a fight for power. There's nothing about principle here. They're not... You know, standing up for the little guy. They don't care about the Constitution. You know, depending on the day, a lot of libs in government and outside of government will tell you the Constitution's really old and we shouldn't pay attention to it and it doesn't really matter. And, you know, why don't people just realize that, you know, there's other stuff that we should <laughs> we should really care about. You know, there's other stuff that should be determining the future of this country. But then when the Constitution suits them, ah, that's when you'll start to hear all of a sudden, how, how important, how profound it is. You know, Newt was out on this, on this question of impeachment. I, I think he's, look, he's a guy who, he knows the impeachment game. He knows how that whole thing goes real well. And, and there's something that gets skipped over a lot of the time in, in the discussions over this that I think is really, really valid, really important. And I'll let the, I'll let the Newtster take the helm for a minute. Play 15. Ken Starr issues a report which has 11 counts in which he says he is guilty. Okay, five of them are obstruction. This count, guilty. This count, guilty. If Mueller had issued a report that said Donald Trump is guilty on 11 counts, 
there would be an impeachment effort. In Clinton's case, they're felonies. I mean, it always strikes me, the feminists who worry about this, you know, Clinton was committing a felony of perjury in a sexual harassment lawsuit. In Trump's case, Mueller comes back and says, there's nothing there that you could take him to court on. There's a pretty big gap here. Does anyone really believe that if, if they had more evidence, you see, this, this was the I didn't, what Mueller did was the equivalent of the I didn't really try defense when, you know, you lose the race. You know, when, when, if you're going to race somebody and, and then you, you don't, you can't beat them, you stop like 50, 50 feet from the finish line before they can finish and say, well, I didn't really try. That's what Mueller did with the report by saying that we couldn't really bring charges anyway. That was the fallback position. Because I assure you, I assure you, if they really had the president nailed on something, if it was clear that he broke the law and they could make that case beyond a reasonable doubt, then what would have been in the report is the president broke the law. We should bring charges or we would bring charges, but we can't. The fallback position was merely because, well, what's the, you know, what's the case going to be? What was the charge going to be? They brought up 10 different ones. Okay, which one, which one is the clear case of obstruction of the 10 little vignettes, little stories that Mueller tells in his diary entries posing as the Mueller report? Which is the one that really, you know, no matter how much you like this president, no matter how much you want to defend him, you can't get past. I can't think of it. Can you think of it? I got nothing. I don't see it. I don't think that it's there. I don't think that there's... Uh, Anything that that Mueller has that was was a slam dunk or even close to it. And if he had it, he would have used it. But keep in mind, Clinton, it was a slam dunk. The guy lied. The guy lied. The guy obstructed. The guy did all kinds of things that were bright red line crossing. And Democrats still completely circle the wagons around him. Democrats still you know, re- refuse to accept that what Bill Clinton did was completely beyond the pale, was totally unacceptable. Um, So what we have is just the Democrats now pretending like we have no ability to recall that history. We have Democrats who act in dishonorable fashion around this question of impeachment. That's why when you hear from those like uh, Rashida Tlaib and uh, Kevin Kramer and and others uh, on this issue, although Kevin Kramer... Um, is a, I know he's a Republican, so forget him. But when you hear Rashida Tlaib talking about this, he, he just came in the top of the segment. You recognize that they're just lying to, they're lying to the public all the time, but the public, a lot of the public likes to be lied to about Trump. And this is why their complaints about Trump and his exaggerations and his stretching of the truth and all the things that he does, this is why it never really resonates because we turn around and say, you know, you guys are engaged in constant constant lying about this president you guys can't help yourselves but come up with stories creating fake quotes and tweeting them out it's like oh sorry my bad didn't think people would take that seriously no no we we are going to take it seriously just like we took it seriously when for two years they were suggesting or outright accusing the president of committing treason and now when the president says oh some of those deep state clowns they may have betrayed their country even if it didn't arise to the constitutional and legal definition of, of, of treason, they say, oh, how could he use that word? How could he use that word? It was what they were, how they were describing him for the last, how many years? 
They still believe it. Some of them still believe it. I'm always amazed. There are all these Russia collusion truthers out there now who block me on Twitter. I don't even know who they are. But I suppose I've created something of a, of a stir online by just going after them. And, and they particularly dislike that I'm from the CIA and I'm willing to call out the top echelon of, of bureaucrats at both CIA and FBI for what really was a soft coup attempt. And there's a tremendous nervousness that we're going to find out exactly what happened and that there are not just going to be consequences for those involved directly in it, but also consequences for those who look like morons, utter morons. And that includes a lot of the press for perpetuating this story. And I think what will end up happening is they're going to they're going to go. Here's here's my my prediction. They're going to wait to go full throttle on impeachment till after the inspector general report comes out. The idea of being go on offense, go on offense against Trump. That's what the Democrats are going to do. doesn't matter how shameless and how brazen it is. They're going to go on offense. They're going to say, see, we have to remove him. And, you're, and we're going to say, well, hold on a second. There was a deep state coup to remove him. Now you're going to try to remove him or try to impeach him through the processes of, of the Congress. And they say, yeah, that's right. Now's the time to do it. They have no honor. They have no integrity. And if you're somebody who has no honor or integrity, what do you do when you're caught? Blame the other side. That's how I see this playing out. Why should another white guy be president? Well, a white guy who doesn't see other identities or understand other experiences should not be president. I do. Uh, and, you know, where there would be gaps in my knowledge or my experience, I will pass the mic to people, uh, you know, who do have that experience. I've, I've also pledged that I would ask a woman to serve uh, as vice president. Swalwell there, who, believe it or not, Congressman Swalwell, he of Russia collusion fraud fame is one of I, I can't keep track. I do this for a living and I can't even tell you how many Democrats are actually running for office right now. I just, I know it's a lot. I know there are a lot of them running for office, but I couldn't tell you what the, I think it's 21. It might be 22. You know, at some point, who even, you know, it doesn't even really matter. Most of them are, this is just ridiculousness. Swalwell, I think, is in that category. But, you know, this is a, this is more than just Eric Swalwell that has to do this. The bend the knee, oh, I need to, debase my knowledge and my opinions on things because I need to confront my whiteness. I, I confront my whiteness all the time. These, these are things that don't even make sense. You say them out loud, you think, what, what, do, what do they think? What do Democrats, the left, think they mean when they do this? What is really the purpose of it? You know, Swalwell here, this is just the it's kind of a pathetic bend the knee experience. He says, I know where there are gaps in my knowledge or experience, and I know when to pass the mic. You know what the answer should be to why should another white guy be president, which was the question that he was asked? The answer to that should be because I'm the best person for the job. If that's not the answer, then you darn sure shouldn't be president, which we all know Eric Swalwell should not be president. But I, you know, even for a Democrat, this is a stretch. Even for a Democrat, this is uh, a, a bad idea. I mean, I, I would, heaven forbid, if I had to pick a Democrat, Swalwell would be, uh, 
pretty low down on the list. Um, but he knows that this is the, the intersectional left is the center now, is the kind of heart and soul of the Democratic Party and the activist class and the, the media and Hollywood elites have, em- have embraced all this. You know, they, they are true believers, if you will, in the notion that you are somehow uh, a problem. You've done something wrong by being a white guy. Right. You have to apologize. You have to confront your privilege. This is just what they say. It's a kind of original sin now to be a white male in American politics, according to leftist Democrats, because uh, you, you, you've enjoyed white privilege your whole life. You, you, so you inherently have had this this special advantage that you can't quantify and that you had no control over. But you're supposed to make some kind of amends for it. How could you ever make amends? for being who you are. Isn't this contrary to what is really at the center of so much of democratic identity politics, which is that you need to be, you know, you do you. You need to be you. You need to live your truth. So why can't I just say, or why can't Eric Swallow just say, I'm living my truth as a white male, as a white male cisgender heterosexual. Why can't that just be my truth that I live without being beat up on and told that that somehow is problematic well because this is all as we know about power this is about the transference of power from one group to another group via a narrative the narrative here is is intersectionality or identity politics these are different variations on a theme they're different ways of saying uh, essentially the same thing Uh, but isn't it so interesting that a democratic party that is obsessed with identity politics finds itself having to apologize once again for having uh, straight white males. Well, Buttigieg is a uh, Buddha judge is um, uh, he's high, you know, high enough that you could put him in the top three, I guess. Um, but straight white males effectively are number one and two right now, Bernie. And I was going to say Beto. Beto's like, really sorry. I don't know if you saw this, but he apologized for being a bad word after he lost his election. And he just like wants everyone to like be his friend again. And uh, I don't think it's going to happen, Beto. I think I think Beto's toast. That's what we used to say back in the 90s. I smell burnt toast. In this case, it's Beto's toast. Um, I think he's done so. But there's another reason why you have straight white men, or in this case, two white males. Um, I mentioned Buddha Judge is number three, I think. I, I keep saying his name differently. I know I, I can't, you know, it's a, it's a hard one. Uh, and that is that some of the, f- the females in the Democrat primary right now are just, I think it's fair to say they're underperforming from where even Democrats thought they would be. You know, Elizabeth Warren had the most spectacular, unforced error in, in politics that I, I can, I've seen maybe ever with that whole 1-1024th Cherokee thing. I mean, that was so bizarre. And I'm, I, I was calling CNN out the day that happened because they reported initially as like Elizabeth Warren proving her heritage. It's like, are you guys morons? She's proving that she's not even vaguely Native American. And someone from CNN corporate communications actually came after me publicly. That was fun. He, he learned the buck slap stings. Uh, it's like, do you really want to you really want to play this game and pretend that CNN is an objective news source? You want to do this publicly? You want to have this out? There's a reason why none of your anchors publicly will try to challenge me on this, because they will get 
intellectually smoked, and they know it. That's why they don't exactly buck slap. They know it's way they know it's fun. I like that one too. But Amy Klobuchar, she's another one who, uh, you know, they want it to happen. They want Amy Klobuchar to be a thing, you know, to be a, a political phenomenon. They want Kamala Harris. I mean, they're, they're, they're just there, and they don't have it. They don't have it. You'd think that a, a political ideology that has such dominance in, the, in, in college campuses, in, in news media, in entertainment media in a way that's, you know, Netflix is now saying they're going to pull back their investment in Georgia because of the heartbeat bill. You never see this in the other direction. You never have a major media company say, you know that that uh, state that wants to allow biological males to compete in athletics against biological females? We're just going to pull all of our business from that state. We don't do that. There is this uh, emotional impulse that leftists have that they will indulge um, that brings them to it's not enough to disagree. They want to they want punishment. They want people to feel pain who don't agree with them. Um, but we'll, we'll get back into why is Amy Klobuchar not not happening? He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. A number of important Supreme Court decisions came down today. I want to spend just a little time with you going through what matters, why you care, what uh, what happened here without getting into all that much detail. Uh, but here's the, the quick 30,000 foot view of what we saw in the Supreme Court decisions that just came down. Uh, Liberals are very ideologically rigid, especially when it comes to the oper- when they have an opportunity on the court to get what they want. Uh, they make sure they they go for it. Right. Uh, conservatives still just as, as a function of their approach to the law. Try to leave things intact. They believe in stare decisis. They believe in precedent. Uh, they're not looking for every opportunity to just break down what was there before and replace it with something else entirely, right? They, they don't do the Roe v. Wade approach. They don't make things up whole cloth because that's the way they want it to be. And so that means that the other side, the liberal justices, the activist justices on the court, they tend to get big wins thrown their way, whereas what we have is just a kind of judicial minimalism. Right. The the respect of the law as it is. And even if and Justice Scalia was perhaps the great example of this, even when he didn't like something and thought it might be wrong, he believed that if it was legal and constitutional, it was not his place to decide that it was wrong. It was to the people that and that Supreme Court justices are not there to decide what's best for the country. They're there to call balls and strikes with regard to the Constitution. That's really it. And that was his approach. You don't have that with liberal justices. They see the opportunity to hit a home run for their side and, and legislate from the bench. They, they go for it. So you had, a, you had an abortion case, and abortion has become 
a big topic in recent weeks, recent months, because of the renewed extremism, or perhaps just the more apparent extremism of the left on this issue, up to and including the support of, as we heard from Governor Ralph Northam. Oh, what happened to Ralph Northam? Remember that guy at the photos and the blackface who lied about it and said he wasn't sure it was him? It was him. Uh, did, did Libs, oh, Libs just swept that whole thing under the rug. That's right. You had the top three officials for the state government of Virginia, Northam, uh, Herring, and uh, forgetting the guy's name. See? Fairfax. Thank you. I remembered. I remembered. But this is how well they, they, they push stuff down the memory hole. You just forget it. It's not there anymore. Did any of them step down? No. Did any of them face any consequences? No. Why? Because if one went, there was the fear that all would go. And if all went, you'd have a Republican at the top of the, govern, uh, of the uh, governor's ticket in Virginia based on the rules of, of succession. That's succession, not secession, just to be clear. Uh, so, yeah, they just made that whole th- they made that whole thing go. But you remember Northam was the one who talked about making an infant comfortable before it was aborted outside the womb. And having a dis- having a conversation with the mother about what to do with a an outside the there's a be- there's a better name for a fetus outside the womb. It's the more accurate, more precise. It's called a baby. What do you do with a baby? And the answer is, according to Democrats, whatever the mother and the doctor decide. The baby does not have independent rights. It does not have legal protection of any kind. This is a rather horrifying thing for any human being to believe, but this is the, this is the dogma of the left now. I mean, th- this is considered a kind of anti-gospel among progressives. That there is no there is no life there to protect. It does not matter. My body, my choice. It's just slogans and anger and rage. You know, I, I had actually a woman who figured out there was one woman who figured out who I was, so to speak, in California among my, my travels among the far left libs there. I was kind of undercover among the libs in Los Angeles. And one of them figured out. And the first thing she wanted to talk to me about is abortion. And she said, why do you want to control my body? And to which I looked at her and I thought, you know. There's a lot of ways I could go with this, but because um, that was certainly I have no interest in controlling this particular this person or any person's body. Um, but I try to say to her, look, this is if you can understand that this is a, a discussion or this is a debate over the second life that is at that is involved here, that there's a separate life, then we, we ha- actually don't have much to talk about. If you don't think that a baby is a baby, I can't convince you that a baby is a baby. If you don't think that a human being with a brain, a heart, lungs, hands, fingers, fingernails uh, is a human being, I, I don't know what to say other than you're wrong. Right? So there's not a whole, lot of, a whole lot of room on this. And I managed to kind of just get past it and get, get around the issue. Uh, but the left are, are abortion extremists. And that's why today's decision uh, was in a, in a variety of ways, not just interesting for what it does right now, but also I think what it points to down the line you had this this uh, case that involved a law passed in indiana and signed by then governor pence now vice president mike pence and it required the fetal remains from a uh, abortion to be disposed of separately uh, separately from 
the rest of what would be considered medical refuse and to be either cremated or buried. Essentially, this law said that the fetal remains after an abortion are to be treated like the parts of a human being, which, you know, if if when a person dies, they don't throw the dead body on a trash heap. That is what they were doing with the and I know this is grisly stuff, folks, but this is this is reality and we deal in reality on this show. They do take the remains of an abortion. They throw it on to they put it in with medical refuse with, you know, use syringes and with, um, you know, bloody cloths and just things that come from a doctor's. They just throw it all in there. Throw it all in together, throw it in the trash, put it on a trash dump. This law just said we're going to treat fetal remains as what they clearly are, which are the remains. It is the remains of a human being. I mean, if people want to argue that we won't extend legal personhood to that human being, I mean, it's a flawed argument, but at least it's an argument. Uh, but it's clearly th- th- this is a tiny these are tiny legs and arms and heads we're talking about. That's what's going on. And I, I mean, I have not forgotten still the most stomach churning and, and difficult news story I have had to cover was what we saw from the videotapes of the Center for Medical Progress and the sale of body parts for profit that Planned Parenthood is engaged in. The sale of fetal body parts for profit. That is what was happening. That was never, they can call it heavily edited, they can lie, and they can do the devil's work for him as much as they want. That is what was happening there. We all know this. We saw the videos, it was not debunked, and man, did the forces of the organized left go after those individuals, David DeLayden and and the people that were working with him did everything in their power to ruin them, criminally prosecute them for for the crime of journalism. They were willing to make undercover journalism a crime all of a sudden, use wiretapping laws. I mean, the the left on this issue, if if you probe deeply, uh, deeply enough, because it's, it's, again, a threat to their power structure, it's a threat to the Democratic Party, to the left's grip on power in this country, but it's also a threat to their sense of, of, moral superiority one of the great and bizarre and obtuse realities of our current time is that it is the leftists who think that they are decent and moral and kind when in so many ways and in so many places they are anything but their ideology is one of death and often misery and hypocrisy and despair and trying to do things in a way that reject both human nature and human history and try to replace it with empty promises. So there were two components of this uh, Supreme Court ruling on the... uh, One had to do with the uh, disposal of babies after an abortion and how they're to be disposed. And is it interesting that the Planned Parenthood would even fight that? Planned Parenthood has a very, and they were fighting it. They have a, they have a very clear interest in the dehumaniz, the, in, the complete dehumanization of the fetus. Now, how do they square that with when a woman is pregnant and is murdered, for example, there'll be a double homicide charge? How, what's Planned Parenthood's legal position on that one? I would like to know. I'm not sure they've thought that far and figured it out. They're just trying to do everything they can to protect this regime of infanticide and to continue running these abattoirs for infants known as Planned Parenthood clinics across the country. And then you also have the prohibition in this law in Indiana on an abortion based upon sex, race, or 
possible disability of a fetus. Now, the Planned Parenthood defense against this is why would somebody, why would you um, only, why, why would you only force somebody to have a baby if it, for example, had, if they thought it was going to have Down syndrome, but somebody with a healthy baby could, could do it anytime they want. And I, that, that is an interesting line of logic, but I, I would, or that is an interesting point to, for them to hold. But I'd also note that what this really does, what this law shows, is that abortion, in the way that the left defends it and calls it a right, it is a right. Um, it's really a form of, it's an open invitation to eugenics. This is a, pure, this is a purely eugenicist proposition that getting rid of a baby because it's male in, or female instead of male or because it's the wrong race or because it may have some disability, uh, that is, a, that is a, a eugenicist proposition. Plain and simple. I mean, you can't really get around. I mean, this is, and then you start to go, and it's a reminder to the public of the eugenics roots of the abortion movement in this country, the abortion lobby, and Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger. And that there has always been from the left this, this promise that the unwanted, and this is from the left, this is the leftist position, that the unwanted in society will be, there'll be less of them because more will be aborted, and so it's a good thing for the rest of society. That is pure eugenics. That is, that is, and this is not an exaggeration, that is the position that the Nazis held. This was taken up by the Third Reich. You know, there will, we, we want, they wanted to get rid of um, d- disabilities in the general population by insisting on either st- sterilization or abortion for people that might have had a child with some uh, congenital defect or... The Nazis explicitly embraced this, and now you have Planned Parenthood saying, no, if you, if you really want a blue-eyed baby and you know this baby's going to have brown eyes, and that's just, you know, that's your decision, your body, your choice. Could it get more immoral than this, my friends? I mean, could it be more clearly demonic than this? You know, I, I flew back from Los Angeles just a couple of days ago, and I, you know, I do not, I'm not yet married, I don't yet have my own kids. But I sat behind, there was a really cute little baby in front of me. And the baby wasn't crying a lot, which is very nice. It was very, and it was, it was just smiling and like to sort of do the whole peekaboo thing in between the seats. And the mom was really friendly. And I don't know what could be a greater gift in, any, in anyone's life, in any mother's life, in any father's life than having an adorable little baby. And I, I have never met somebody to this day. I've never met somebody who said, wow, I really wish, I really wish I had aborted my son or daughter. I have... Tragically, met some people who have the opposite feeling of, I really shouldn't have made the choice that I made to terminate the pregnancy. Uh, so these Supreme Court decisions that came down today, while they weren't big wins for the pro-life movement, uh, they are illustrating the realities of what's going on. And uh, I can just say this to you. I mean, if you want to take, I know this is a difficult conversation, if you, but if you want to take something from this that is at least hope, uh, this regime of abortion and all nine months of a pregnancy, funded by your tax dollars, by the way, it is funded by your tax dollars, it's going to end. I can't tell you when, and I can't tell you how, but it will end. And just as we look back on some other periods in our history as how could that much, and it wasn't everyone in, involved in it, it wasn't everywhere, but how could so much 
evil and immorality have flourished in an otherwise great and just and, and decent country, uh, we will look back at this, this period of the last 50 years or so, assuming it ends within 50 or who knows, and say, how could this have been the case? How could a moral, an otherwise moral country have allowed this to go on? Um, uh, we'll have more on this, friends. And, and I, I do want to talk to you about this show, uh, Chernobyl, that I because there are important lessons. I'm not just going to sit here and play TV critic, although sometimes I like to do that. That's kind of fun. But I'm not really going to do that. I, there are some important takeaways from watching that miniseries on HBO. We'll get to that and more. Stay with me. What is wrong with Justin Amash? What is this guy's problem? Why is he doing a CNN town hall? Where this was just earlier today, I think. Am I am I right on this one? Yeah, just this just happened when we're on air, doing a CNN town hall where he's trashing Trump, calling for impeachment of the president, saying the attorney general deliberately misrepresented the Mueller report. I mean, with with Republican friends like Amash, Amash, Amash I think it's Amash. You know, who needs crazy left wing enemies? You know, really, I think it's fair to ask, what is this guy's problem? Democrats never have this. Democrats never have defections from within their own ranks. You know why? Because the sweets, the enticements, the goodies that the left can offer people are just, its they just induce the sellouts. They really do. You know, it's the... uh it's the Jeff Flake maneuver. Oh, you know, I, I don't want the you know, I'm going to be the, the rogue Republican that occasionally has nice words said about him by the left. I'm going to go rogue on my own side. So that no, stop selling out. I mean, for him to say, and I, I just thoroughly disagree with Amash here on the merits. The attorney general didn't misrepresent anything. All right. If he misrepresented it, then tell me what he misrepresented and bring charges against the president. You punk. But you won't. None of them will. Man, you know, it's really what it is, is Trump just drives these people nuts. There are just certain people who can't handle that this guy that they believe so firmly is, is terrible in the job and should never have had the job. He's actually doing a pretty good job. They, they just, they can't deal. They can't deal. Anyway, Chernobyl, it's an incredible show, but there are lessons about government and bureaucracy that I take from it that I, I want to share with you. That'll be coming up in the top of the hour. I mean, it's an incredible miniseries, and it's haunting and terrifying, and it's true. It makes it much more powerful. We'll get to that. Well, the good we did. It doesn't matter. What does matter is that to them, justice was done. See... A just world is a sane world. There was nothing sane about Chernobyl. I'm pleased to report that the situation in Chernobyl is stable. In terms of radiation, I'm told it's the equivalent of a chest x-ray. No, Chernobyl is on fire. And every atom of uranium is like a bullet, penetrating everything in its path. Metal, concrete, flesh, 
Now, Chernobyl holds over three trillion of these bullets. So uh, uh, this is this is the, the trailer for HBO's Chernobyl miniseries, which I have to tell you all is, I think, the best thing on television, scripted show on television right now. It's it's absolutely worth watching if you even have to go on your TV and pay to just download it and watch it on demand in some. I think there are ways you can do that now, even with HBO shows. You can buy it. If you don't have HBO, it's worth it. I think it's five or six episodes. I have not seen it all the way through. I've seen the first three episodes of it, and it's it's excellent. Um, and it's excellent for a number of reasons. One is just the the writing, the production value, the from what I understand, the the uh, accuracy of the costuming and the the shots, the way they set up the cinematography, so you see the. You know the different components of the burning reactor, and I mean, it, it's all just very, very true to life. That they really recreated this in a way that it, it's like a, a fast-paced scripted documentary almost. Uh, there, there's nothing kind of silly or out of place about it. But even more importantly, it is not is a reminder of a pretty shocking historical incident that I think has really gotten. Loss and and I will tell you this truthfully. I'm I'm not someone who knew much. I knew that Chernobyl there was a there was a a meltdown. Although from watching the miniseries, what you see is that it's more than a meltdown. The reactor exploded. Uh, it it was a situation that if they did not get it under control, they were going to be irradiating the continent of Europe and who knows what else. But the real reason why it's so worthwhile for you to watch is that I put Chernobyl in a kind of similar category to, say, The Lives of Others, the German movie about the East German, uh, the, sorry, the German language movie about the East, Ger- East Berlin Stasi, the secret police. And you watch The Lives of Others and you understand what a real modern day tyranny is like. What is tyranny in, in an advanced Western European country? What would tyranny look like in you know, the 1960s? What would tyranny have felt like for everyday people? Uh, and this is why some of the most powerful anti-Soviet writing that was ever done, and obviously East Germany was part of the, uh, behind the Iron Curtain, part of the Soviet Union, and you had the Berlin Wall because of the separation of the West and the Soviet, uh, Soviet power, but it gives you some of the most powerful stuff is the description that you can get from people of the day to day. What is it really like to live under a totalitarian regime? What is it like when you cannot question authority, when government officials make all of the important decisions for you in your life, whether you realize it or not, and how soul crushing that is, how dysfunctional it is. It's a reminder of what makes freedom precious to all of us. But what is so, what is so I think, uh, has such a great impact, so profound about watching Chernobyl, other than it's just a very good viewing experience. I mean, it will suck you in, um, and it, it's something that I think will, will stay with you for quite some time, is the way that it shows you bureaucracy. I mean, true sclerotic completely immovable bureaucracy in action. And what do incompetent government officials who are not in any way accountable to the people, 
what do they do? What is their first impulse? Even in the face of an unbelievable risk and a tremendous tragedy, even when you would think that your basic humanity, if you were one of these government bureaucrats, and they, they take you through the, the various meetings of the, you know, the local Communist Party officials, the higher-up sort of regional Communist Party officials, all the way up to the equivalent of the, the true energy czar, you know, not like the czars we have here, but, well, I guess it's not really a czar there either. They got rid of the czar. But they walk you through these different, these different meetings, these discussions, and I'm sure that they're recreating the dialogue and all that, but it does show you that the number one goal of a bureaucracy, and this is something I say to you, and, and look, some of the conversations that they have about this nuclear explosion in, in the reactor, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of the approach I used to see from some people in the CIA and, and in the government just in general Whenever something goes bad, the first reaction of the government bureaucrat is not, oh my gosh, what does this mean for the people? They're supposed to be public servants. The first reaction is, are we going to get in trouble? Is, some, is one of us going to get fired? Is the institution that we work for going to come into public uh, disrepute? Will there possibly be a cutting of the budget? Will there be hearings? Because they, they don't have a product, so they're not really... Process, as I always say, is the product of bureaucracies. Bureaucracies often exist to exist. Much of the, of the workforce in any, especially a government bureaucracy, is just there because there have to be people there. They don't particularly do anything. They don't do very much. And that you see in real time. But then when you get into... Okay, you're, you're faced with, with true catastrophe. And you, you heard some of there in, in that introduction. You're faced with the possibility of mass, uh, mass cancer cases and people dying. And radi dying from radiation poisoning is, from what I understand, one of the most painful and, and horrific ways you can go. It's like being burned from the inside out. And, you know, and this is what the and these bureaucrats, all they want to make sure is that they're not in trouble and that the Communist Party looks good and that the Soviet Union looks good. And it was all about CYA cover or I guess maybe CYB cover your butt. That's rule number one in every bureaucracy. Well, no, rule number one is process is the product. And rule number two is cover your butt. And this is in, in a way a reminder of how you know, government is not your friend. Government is not there to keep you safe and warm. Government is not about making you feel better about yourself at night. Government should have very limited processes that it engages in, very limited missions, very limited scope, that it also has to have accountability to the people. Uh, and, and when you have an unaccountable bureaucracy, which we have in this country too, this is not just in the Soviet Union, we have unaccountable federal bureaucracies. Hello, deep state, trying to get rid of Trump. Things can get out of control very quickly. And, and that's why when I, I look at this, I, I watch this uh, Chernobyl miniseries, the, the mentality of these, these communists. I mean, true commies, right? Not, not commies in the way that I like to throw the term around. It's just a, a general disparagement for psycho libs, although it works for them too. Uh, but these real ideologically driven Communist Party officials who, when faced with a reality that is 
that is not favorable to the interests of their party and of the bureaucratic mechanisms that it, that it represents and oversees. They just insist on inverting reality. They insist that the truth is not true. That's what's false is correct. That's the response you get. And, and from all the, you know, the God that failed, I've mentioned that to you before, the writings of former communists who turned on communism, uh, including Richard Wright here in the United States and, and many others, it's, I think, almost, you can download it online for free, I believe, but I'm not sure it's even really in print anymore. You can get it in some place. You probably get it on Amazon for 20 bucks or something. Uh, it is well worth the read. It's excellent. And it, it just, part of the, of the process of understanding the failures of a communist system, of any truly authoritarian system, part of the, the, your ability to understand it has to be premised always in they don't care what happens to the people. It's never about the people. That's why they're always naming everything. The people's army, the people's palace, the people's this, the people's that. They protest too much about the people because it's never about the people. It's about them and their power and protecting that power and those privileges. And that's what Chernobyl, this mini uh, series, shows you in a way that will, it will stay with you. It will haunt you. So I highly, highly recommend you watch Chernobyl. I do think it is the best thing on TV right now. And I'm going to finish the last episode tonight. So as far as China is concerned, uh, they wouldn't make a deal. I think they probably wish they made the deal that they had on the table before they tried to renegotiate it. They would like to make a deal. We're not ready to make a deal. And we're taking in tens of billions of dollars of tariffs. And that number could go up very, very substantially, very easily. But I think sometime in the future, China and the United States will absolutely have a great trade deal. A great trade deal, the president says. Well, we've got billions and billions of dollars at stake. The markets seem to be a little spooked lately about what the future is here. Uh, what should we expect? And, and is the president still on the right track when it comes to China? Some are saying this could be one of the biggest determining factors in how our economy does in what's going to be a very contentious election cycle. We've got our friend Gordon Chang joining us now. He's the author of The Coming Collapse of China. Gordon, great to have you back. So much, Buck. Um, how, how is Trump doing with all of this? And, and, and does the current situation vis-a-vis China surprise you? Yeah, I think Trump's doing actually very well on trade. And the reason uh, is that he's taken a firm marked departure from his predecessors, but it was something that absolutely needed to happen. You know, as for whether I'm surprised or not, um, we have always thought that there were impediments on the Chinese side to a trade deal. And Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, I think, ignored them. Um, but it was clear that there were problems inside the political system there. And now um, it's evident that there are, because uh, China's talking about a people's war against the United States. And that, in other words, we're the enemy of China and the Chinese people. Also, they talk about their economic system being a core interest, quote-unquote. And in Chinese Communist Party lingo, that is something that they can go to war over. Um, so clearly, uh, right now, we're not in a point where there can be an agreement between the two sides. Do you think that there's a, a component of this where they're trying to wait out and see what happens in the election in the hopes that if there were to be a Democrat, any Democrat who defeated Trump, 
there would be uh, an expectation that they'd be in a better position and maybe could just make this whole this whole trade dispute, in a sense, or at least America's willingness to stand up to China when it comes to trade, go away? I think that there may be some elements in the Chinese political system that think that way. You know, we saw, for instance, when the Mueller report was released, uh, China became much more interested in talking to President Trump. Uh, and I think that they probably were waiting for the release of that long-anticipated uh, document. Um, you know, when it comes to the election, I'm not so sure, because that's more than a year away. And I'm not so sure that Chinese officials think that they can actually wait that period of time. Because if there were no deal um, until after the November 2020 elections, a lot of companies would have, in the interim, made the decision to leave China And I don't think the Chinese believe that that's a good thing for them and that they could withstand a substantial reduction in their manufacturing sector. So, Gordon, what should the Trump administration do? Stick to its stick to its guns on this one? Should they hold fast? What is this the correct approach? Because right now, I think there are a lot of people who view this. I mean, I hear them on a regular basis talking on TV, writing articles saying, just imagine how our economy would be would be doing if Trump hadn't. Uh, engaged in this back and forth with China. What what do you say to that? Yeah, long term, uh, we have to do this. You know, China is stealing somewhere between 150 and 600 billion dollars worth of U.S. intellectual property each year. That's a grievous wound to the U.S., and we've got to stop it. Now, people may say tariffs are not the way to do it, but if you take that position, then you're probably arguing for even more coercive measures. So tariffs are sort of an interim way. Um, I think the president um, is going to find that he's probably going to go to even more drastic measures eventually because the Chinese are going to force him to do that. And unfortunately, this is a fight that we have to have. But fortunately, this is the perfect time for us to do so because our economy is robust and the Chinese economy is increasingly fragile. Yeah. What's going on with the Chinese economy right now? I mean, how much of a how much pain are they feeling as a result of their intransigence on these trade issues the Trump administration is is pushing back on. Yeah, the Chinese economy is not growing at the 6.4% pace that they claimed for the first quarter of this year. It's probably in the onesies, maybe even in the twosies. But we're seeing, for instance, important indicators pointing negative. At the end of last year in December, an important Chinese professor in Beijing said, look, the Chinese economy in 2018 is going to grow no more than 1.67%, maybe even contract. And there has really been no substantial improvement since then. Uh, and matter of fact, there's been some more negative factors that have occurred since uh, December. So um, China right now is in trouble, especially because it's accumulating debt at an unsustainable pace. And I think the Chinese are getting nervous. We're seeing this because people are starting to put money in gold and in hard currencies. And that's not a good sign for China. You know, Gordon, I was just over there, and I know I spoke to you before I went over to China. I was in Beijing and Shanghai, as the audience knows. And and there were a lot of uh, different China experts that had been studying the issue for for decades that I had access to that I was able to spend a lot of time with over there. And and one thing that, that seemed to come up uh, in, in a bunch of different contexts was just the that the, the deterioration in U.S. China relations has gone beyond just a, a trade dispute into feelings of, of negativity toward America and perhaps even toward Americans among at least some segments of the Chinese population. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think that there probably has been some 
It's probably widespread. But also widespread is a real concern that China will not be able to make it through this, um, largely because they are dependent on the U.S. economy um, and U.S. producers and consumers. So at, at some point, uh, you know, I, I, I think that we're going to see a divorce between the United States and China, um, largely because Xi Jinping has dug in his heels and he has actually started to talk in terms that make it very difficult to have a, a trade deal. When you say people's war, you brand the United States an enemy, that's going to have consequences. And so, yes, Chinese people may like us a lot less, but unfortunately, this is something that we have to go through. And the Trump administration manages to get the Chinese to finally sign a deal that you would say, that's the deal we want to sign. How? Just just by staying, where the, staying with the positions they have right now? Um, the only way to get there, Buck, um, because right now the Chinese are nowhere close to that, the only way to get there is to have the Chinese feel that they're on the point of extinction and that they have no choice. Wow. All right. Gordon Chang, everybody, author of The Coming Collapse of China. Gordon, always appreciate you making the time for us. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Buck. All right, Jim, we got more coming up. Stay with us. Country is stronger, safer, and with more jobs because our president has made his every move correct. Don't be fooled by the political left because we are the people of this nation that is witnessing triumph. So let us stand with our president. Let us stand up for this truth that President Trump is the greatest president since Abraham Lincoln. God bless America, and may God continue to guide this nation. John Voigt, man, look at him. Letting it, letting it go there. Giving, giving us some of the good stuff. Saying that President Trump is the greatest president since Abraham Lincoln. This got a lot of attention over the weekend. John Voigt, who is a very good actor. I mean, I've seen him in a lot of... A lot of stuff. Most recently in the show, uh, not Michael Clayton. What's it called, Mark? What's the show about the guy who's the fixer in uh, in Hollywood? He kind of is like you know the black bag guy who takes care of problems for people. He's got an Irish name. He's from Boston. I can't remember. I don't even have a clue what you're talking about. Oh yeah, it's it's Liev Schreiber. Everyone's yelling right now at the radio. They know they know what I'm talking about. But it's it's some show where he anyway. John Voight's in that. He plays. He does a good job as the kind of ne'er-do-well father figure that comes in to just, just mess everything up for, uh, for everyone. But here, hold on. I, have to, I, can't, I can't do this thing where I don't know the name of the show that I'm talking about. So, Leah Schreiber, Showtime, what's it called? Ray Donovan. Thank you. Ray Donovan. Sorry, guys. I know that drives me crazy, right? And I, I can't bring things up and not know what I'm bringing up here on the show. Uh, but John Voight does a very good job on that. It's, it's funny to me because I was just out in, just out in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, I I did have the experience of kind of infiltrating a few a few precincts. I mean, I spent most of my time in L.A. and some of you might laugh in uh, Venice Beach, which is far left, Santa Monica, which is also far left, but like a little richer far left, I think is what you'd say, a little more elitist far left. Uh, and then West Hollywood, which is known as being a a very um, prominent gay area of Los Angeles, uh, but also does, you know, there's a, a lot of just restaurants and, and other things there that are fun to go to and, and check out at, at night. So it's a very vibrant neighborhood with a lot of stuff going on. That's where I spent. But it's very liberal. All these are very liberal areas, even for Los Angeles. I did make it into Beverly Hills for a little while. 
Well, hello, Beverly Hills. You're looking, you're looking well. Your, uh, the recent work you've had done on those wrinkles has been fantastic. Uh, so I, I spent some time around there, and I, I talked to people. And it is fun because I usually – I don't launch into, hey, I'm a, I'm a conservative radio host because then they would start uh, melting in front of me. And it's, it's like I would be walking human kryptonite. But I, I am in a position to uh, say, well, I work for The Hill – and maybe I let them think that I'm a journalist and I have a scruffy beard and they kind of figure that I'm, and man, did I get just at different places over the week that I was there out at restaurants and bars. I have a lot of friends in Los Angeles. Did I get a double dose of left-wing stupidity? I mean, I just got so much, there's such a, an incredible amount of, of ignorance, but also a kind of fervent ignorance that you get among the uh, entertainment industry libs. They are particularly they're they're militantly they're militantly stupid. Uh, they believe very very strongly in what they believe and know almost nothing about it. Uh, and that's also where I think a deep insecurity comes in. Whenever you try to engage them in a conversation, they become emotional because it's really not about the issue. Uh, they get angry at you, and this is true of a lot of libs, but with Hollywood libs, whew, man, even more so. Uh, they get angry because the moment they're challenged, then there's this recognition that they might have to explain why it is they think what they think, and they're exposed. They feel like, oh, hold on a second. If, if I actually have to explain to somebody why I believe these things, why I think these things, uh, then perhaps they'll figure out that I don't really know, that it's really a fashion, that there's a a virtue signal. Like I saw, uh, I think it was a... Uh, a uh, a quote by uh, oh gosh I can't remember now but I, I saw a quote recently about how I think it was Russell Kirk that liberalism appeals the most to people's vanity and that's why it's so such a powerful force that it, it appeals to human vanity whereas conservatism is rooted in human reality which is more difficult to understand and deal with it's so true man that's that's the politics of Hollywood whatever appeals to an individual's vanity. That's what they believe. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. We made ours go up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Roll call time, everybody. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. I am here in the swamp. I don't know why I'm being all sing-songy about it, but yeah, yeah, here we are. Much to discuss, much to talk about. So let's get right to it. Uh, Aaron writes, no podcast since last Thursday on Stitcher or iHeart. I'm in Las Vegas, Nevada. Aaron, I hope that's not true. That's certainly not supposed to be true. So I don't know what to say about that. Is that is that right, uh, producer Mark? Are we? Is there nothing? It's the there. It's there. I promise. All right, Mark says it's there, and I argue with Mark at my peril. So guys, you know, please check again and see. It, it, it always. I think some of you now just like to toy with my emotions and tell me. That there's no podcast when there is a podcast. Darn it, there is a podcast. Please tell me there's a podcast up. So yeah, good times. Uh, Eric writes, Buck, welcome back from China. 
what are the fewest steps that would mostly fix the border problem and pause asylum or dictate that asylum request must be made outside the country? Build the wall. The wall is useless if they can walk up with a key phrase like, I fear persecution and be allowed into the country. Can't President Trump, whom I love and thank God for, do an executive action? Wouldn't something like that blow up in our face with so-called fam- like, like so-called family separation did? Also, you're so spot on about Aquaman, so much money and effort to end up with a hot mess. It is a mockery. Shields high. Thank you, Eric. It, it is. Look, I, I'm sticking to my guns on this one. It is a mockery. I think Aquaman was terrible. If you enjoyed it, folks, if you thought that it was a good movie. Uh, sorry, I just knocked over like half of the Freedom Hut. Gosh, darn it. Get your stuff. Get your stuff together. Um, if you enjoyed it, good for you, man. I mean, you know, there are lots of movies that I like. I mean, there's music that I listen to that I don't want to tell you all about. You know, I don't want to make you all think like, oh, my gosh, Buck listens to that. And it's not just T-Swift that I'm embarrassed about. There's other stuff, too. There is some other stuff. I mean, if the right Natalie Imbruglia song comes on, do I kind of groove out to those tunes? How many of you even know who Natalie Imbruglia is? You know what's funny? There are a bunch of people listening to this right now who know exactly who I'm talking about. And they're like, oh, I, 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 and then they're in their head, they're humming the tune. I'm already torn. Um, all right. Sorry about that. I know. I apologize. Uh, what else did Eric? Oh, Eric. Sorry. Eric asked me real questions about real things. So let me give that the attention and deference that it deserves. Uh, in terms of fixing the border problem, yes, you're correct. A wall is not going to fix the asylum request issue. Uh, they can just walk up to a wall and find the entryway because all the walls do have places of of entry or ways that you can get around it or even through it or over it and then when they're caught because remember part of what the wall does is just slow down illegal entry so that it's easier to get caught but if they get caught they say i have a credible fear if they don't get caught well then they're in the country pretty easy right and the president's executive orders the problem there what slows them down on all that is the judges who come out and say, sorry, you're not allowed to you're not allowed to do that thing. These universal injunctions that come down, all it takes is one federal judge to decide that it's not allowed anymore. And that's kind of the end of it. Tim writes for roll call with lots of exclamation points. I did appreciate the Casablanca reference last week. Solid Beto impression. I'd pay good money. So you do Beto with Ben Shapiro doing Chris Matthews and Crowder doing his Bernie. Keep up the good work. I really do hope your message about the border is getting through to the White House. Well, thank you, Tim. And that would be fun. Shapiro doing uh, Shapiro doing Chris Matthews, Crowder doing Bernie, Buck doing Beto. You know, maybe somebody should put that out there in the ether. That would be a fun little segment we could all do together. And I think it would work. It would work very well. Julie right? Hey, Buck, great show on Friday. I'm glad you're back from China. Well, Julie, that makes two of us a little too much, a little too much brown sauce, which is just a fancy way of saying soy sauce, which is a fancier way of saying gluten sauce. That's right. Soy sauce. Number two ingredient. Check it out yourself. Wheat. Very little soy in soy sauce. It should be called wheat sauce, which is essentially a form of poisoning buck. So we don't like that. Uh, oh, and by the way, Julie says all the guest hosts were good and enjoyable. I'm wondering if it's ever been explained why Christopher Steele was desperate to stop Trump. I may have missed that in the disaster of the last two years, maybe because he was desperate for 
a paycheck. If you ever go back to the Freedom Hut podcast, maybe you can do a listening contest for the next guest. Not everyone has an interesting life, but I bet some of your, uh, or a listener contest, but I bet some of your listeners do. Thanks, Julie. Uh, Julie, Christopher Steele, I'm sure, is just like so many others. I mean, this is what I would guess. I don't know this, so I just, this is my surmising or my analyzing of the circumstances. Uh, But Christopher Steele is someone who is very much, I'm sure, of the internationalist establishment mindset. And that means that he views Trump as a tremendous threat to the establishment, that Trump is somebody who upends not just the systems that the uh, establishment relies on, but also the sense of importance and control and sense of self that so many people who rely on various institutions, uh, you know, they feel like, well, what is it all about if someone like Trump can come along and do a better job and maybe even disrespect or disregard some of these norms and some of these established ways of doing business. So there was a very widespread revulsion among the elites against Trump. Of course, the great irony there is that Trump is himself at least a billionaire of some level. We don't know exactly how much, but a billionaire. And so is financially speaking in the true elite, uh, but they view him as a traitor to his class now. Let's see here. Uh, Richard writes, Buck, happy hellos from the Hoosier. About the app adversity score nonsense, a third of someone's score is based on where you live. Let's say I'm well off and live in the suburbs of Chicago and Indiana. What's to stop me from buying a rundown house in Gary, Indiana, claim that as my primary residence, and boosting my kid's score so he gets into college? Never really moving and then selling it after. This whole thing is stupid. I agree on Aquaman, too. If the people of Atlantis have the power to do all this amazing stuff, unlimited power, and get all sea left to do as they please, they could pick up the trash on the ocean floor and not go to war with humanity. Bad premise, but fun special effects. Shields high. Yeah, Richard, no, Aquaman. I mean, look, I'm not trying to beat up on the pro-Aquaman side. Although, is that what I'm doing right now? Am I squishing you pro-Aquaman people like a bunch of tender calamari in my hand? That was my squishy noise. I don't know if that really even worked. Just kind of sounded like I... Well, anyway. Um, it was a squishy noise of calamari in my hand. But let's move on, Buck. Let's just go to the next one. Oh, but no, your point about changing your residence as a means of uh, finding a way around or, or scheming, gaming the system on the adversity score for application pro- uh, processes... I don't know if that would work, but I'm sure there are going to be all kinds of ways that people try to scheme it. You know, the rules, we, we keep trying to move around. It's hard enough to determine what is a, a fair-minded, you know, it's hard enough to determine what is a, a, uh, an honest approach to weighing and gauging merit and, and skill and expertise. When you start adding all these other externalities into it, it just becomes a mess, so, you know, I think that there will be ways that people can gain the system and they will gain the system. I would also say this, you know, as a random aside, I don't know when we think of this. Uh, I, I saw a young woman, when I say young woman, probably 30. Uh, <laughs> I saw a young woman who was also in her 30s, like me, uh, at, a, at a bar when I was in Hollywood. And I, I looked at her for a second and I thought, 
where have I seen this person before? Because uh, she looked very, very familiar. And, and we kind of stared at each other for a second. And uh, it turned out that she was, I, I thought I knew her as, as maybe she was a friend, but I am in Los Angeles. I should have known better. She was one of the actresses from the show Friday Night Lights, which I liked very much as a TV show, even though in a lot of ways it's ridiculous. And the second season goes completely off the rails. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that was problematic about the show. Um, but overall, I, I, I felt that, that it kind of carried its weight and did a pretty good job. Uh, but she was one of the characters introduced in the last, I guess, two seasons of the show. And I said, oh, Friday Night Lights, you're in Friday Night Lights. And she kind of said, you know, yeah. And I talked to her for a minute. I got to tell you, not very friendly. <laughs> so kind of kind of disappointing because here I have somebody who really liked the show. And, you know, you just you don't want to meet you don't want to meet the actors a lot of times from the shows that you like. That much I will tell you. She was a little she was a little prickly, I'd say. And I wasn't I swear I wasn't even I was just being. Being a nice, normal dude sitting there, wasn't trying to get a phone number or anything like that. All right. Uh, Gina. Oh, okay. Here we go. She says she can't get on the iHeart. You know, guys, I, I don't know. I, I think that we're up on iHeart. It should, it should work here. Uh, here we go. Lynn writes, uh, hey, Buck, I'm wondering if you were in Iraq in 2009. Um, wondered if that's you. Uh, no, Lynn, I was not there in '09. But thank you so much for writing in, and thank you for your service, Frank. I just finished reading Conquistador on your recommendation. Wow, was it good? Part of history I had no clue about. Plus, I had this thought that Cortez easily defeated the Aztecs. Boy, was I wrong. Well, Frank, I'm really glad you enjoyed it, man. I thought it was a was a great a great book, a great read. You know, I'm almost done with Dune, the Frank Herbert sci-fi novel which you know i've really never read much in the way of sci-fi before and i've got to say i mean he's an incredible storyteller and and the intricacy of his descriptions and the the story that he weaves and i think this book was published in the 60s uh it holds up very very well almost done with it and all 800 pages i started reading it when i was in china and i got a little distracted in los angeles but i'm coming back to it now i think it was i think it was pretty good all right, team, uh, that's going to be it for today in the Freedom Hut. Thank you, as always, for being here. I appreciate it. Uh, please do, if you have not already, subscribe to the podcast. And I will talk to you tomorrow, same time and place. Shields high.